The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly Evans once again. And here's what's ahead. Jay Powell's message of slower but not lower, sending stocks eh, mostly lower. Today's session, at least they were. Yields, though, mostly going up. So what does all of this mean for your money? How do we read all this? We're going to look at out of position now. Plus, we are less than 24 hours away from one of the more critical data points for the Federal Reserve. That is the monthly jobs number. One of our guests has a front row seat to what is going on in the labor market. And there is one trend he is seeing that does not bode well for the Fed's fight against inflation. And the CEO of CF Industries on making fertilizer, helping to feed the world, and dealing with higher natural gas costs. This is a big hour. Let's kick it all off with your money and the market's dumb. Markets trying to make a little bit of a comeback. They here. are because they were deeply in the red earlier today, Brian. You and I both saw it this morning. But what we have right now is a market that has moved tremendously off the session lows. Now, as things stands right now, the Dow Industrials are just about flat on the session, up about 14 points. It's pretty much unchanged. But to give you an idea of the S&P 500, currently at 37.48, we are down 11 points at the highs of the session. We are just about there right now. We were down roughly nine points. At the lows of the session, we were down 61 handles, so that's a big move off the lows of the session. As things stand, we're off about one quarter of 1%. The Nasdaq Composite was off well over a percent at one point. The Nasdaq Composite at 10,458, currently down two-thirds of 1%. One of the main reasons why the Nasdaq remains an out- or underperformer has to do with what Brian mentioned about interest rates. They're pretty much higher across the board, although we've seen a little bit of temperance of that in just the last couple of hours. Meanwhile, the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield is 4.14%. Remember, the cycle highs, just about 4.33% for that. So we're kind of moving back towards there. The two-year note yield, 4.70%. But pretty much across the yield curve, across all maturities, you're seeing rates rise. That interest rate rise because of the Fed yesterday is putting some pressure on valuations, especially for tech and tech-adjacent names. If you kind of put things in context, the NASDAQ 100 right now, the large cap NASDAQ 100, is trading at roughly 20 times next year's anticipated earnings. To give you context, where where the big five trade, the five biggest stocks in the NASDAQ 100, Apple currently trades at around 22 times forward earnings. Microsoft at around 22. Alphabet is the relative bargain at 16 times forward earnings. Meanwhile, Amazon is closer to just around, call it 59 times forward earnings and around 38 for Tesla right now. So again, valuations for big technology-related type names very much in focus with interest rates. And one other place to watch, it's been an outperformer, and it kind of speaks to what's happening in the environment right now. Quick service restaurants, the ticker is QSR. The name is Restaurant Brands International. It's up 2.5% right now. For those people who aren't familiar with the name, It's the parent company of Burger King, Tim Hortons, and Popeye's Chicken. It came out earlier this morning with better-than-expected profits and revenues and sales growth at established restaurant locations also coming in better-than-expected, powered by, Brian, some real system-wide gains at Burger King. 
So watch those quick service restaurant names. We'll see if whether or not the inflation story, the slowing economic narrative causes more Americans and more people internationally to trade into some of these quick service type names. They may benefit in a time where inflation is cutting budgets in a lot of different places. Brian, back over to you. I heard the interview of the CEO earlier on CNBC. I wanted them to ask, what do you call a Whopper overseas? A Royale with cheese? That's the quarter pounder. It's not the metric system. I have a lot of questions, Dom, still. And I don't have answers, so I hope you find them. That's the first time you've not had an answer. Dom, thank you very much. All right, so whether you call it slower, not lower, or slower pace but higher destination or anything else, one thing is clear. The Fed is not backing down from its fight against inflation. It made that perfectly clear in the very hawkish press conference, which, of course, followed the pretty dovish press release. Huh. Anyway. Is it time to rethink the dovish-fueled rally that we seem to have had recently, or maybe that rally has something to do with something else? Let's bring in Alan Boomer. He is Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Momentum Advisors. Alan, good to have you on. Listen, there was some—I'm going to butcher it, but there's some Alan Greenspan quote back in the day that was something like, if you understood what I said, then I misspoke. And when I, when I heard the press conference yesterday, following the press release— it was like two separate organizations put each one out. or did, I mean, they, they totally contradicted each other. How do you read the Federal Reserve right now? Because they do matter a lot for stocks. Sure. I, I always, you know, that's a, a great quote, by the way. And, you know, I really think that the Fed is pivoting a little bit. I do think I, I read more into what was written because, that's when they're really careful about the words, right? And I, what I see is sort of a dovish pivot. They're saying, look, we're still gonna fight inflation, but look, let's, let's recognize the fact that we've had a cumulative impact from all of these hikes that we've already had. And maybe we can you know, slow down a little bit and not go so aggressive moving forward. You, you've gotta understand that the, the data on inflation is not going to move overnight. And I, I think that the, the Fed is wise to make a slight pivot to be a bit more dovish. Yeah, especially with some of the wage gains that we have seen. They are what economists, I believe, would call sticky. And I hate to bring politics up. We've got five or whatever, six days to the midterms. So I kind of have to here, Alan. And everybody was attributing this recent rally we've had to the Federal Reserve. I was talking to a lot of people on air, off air, who were saying, eh, it might have more to do with the polls that were shifting a bit. I'm not saying one is right or one is not. But do, do the midterms matter for equities right now? Absolutely. I think the midterms are a huge catalyst in the near term, right? The, the, the midterms are always a source of volatility. And as it gets closer to the polls, you start to get more of an, an expectation of who's going to win. And, you know, you tend to, to find a market that does better. The stock market does better in a divided government. And it looks more and more like we're moving in that direction. And that's a net positive for the market. And so I do think that once it's decided, once the uncertainty is over, midterms are done, I do think that stocks should take off, at least in the short run, although there's certainly a lot of headwinds for a lot of other reasons. I do think the midterms matter. Yeah, just another reason to watch on Tuesday as well. Is there any part of the market that you like more than others right now, Alan? Sure. I, I think that right now it's interesting. You know, Dom highlighted the stocks that are doing well today and what's not doing well. And a lot of the growthy stocks, companies that are investing in R&D and, you know, th those things matter. And those are great moves for the long run. But when you're potentially teetering on a recession, you really want to look to companies right now where, the, the, you know, they may be 
good dividend payers. Historically, maybe they were doing a lot of buybacks. We analyzed the stock market based on the use of cash and just found that when you're heading into a recession, the better buy is the company that has a nice dividend yield and has also been doing buybacks. And if you can find companies with a high cash flow, meaning they're earning a lot of money but paying out a small percentage, that's a great buy right now. Yeah, and if you believe the markets are going to take off, you know, you want to buy low. We're seeing multiples and valuations come back to median or below median levels right now. Uh, American International Group, Alan Boomer, real pleasure to have you on the exchange and CNBC. We will see you again. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. All right. So now that we are past that Federal Reserve decision, the focus will likely shift to other economic data, like the jobs number, which comes out tomorrow. Despite six rate hikes this year, the labor market remains tight. Workers are scarce with nearly every business or industry that we speak with saying they're having a lot of trouble finding people to take jobs, even at higher pay. And check this out. American companies are on track to spend $50 billion more to hire people than they did just before the pandemic. Let's welcome back in Evan Sohn, chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. That is his number that we just cited Evan, what is that number? What what is that fifty billion? Well, Brian, thanks for having me on your show. You know, we talked about this earlier, earlier in the year, and we talked about this that relates to the job, uh, the Great Resignation, and the job hopper economy, which has now morphed into job mobility. And if you look at the Jolts report and you look at the hiring that's going on in twenty two over the average hiring going on in twenty nineteen. Um, times the average cost to hire a base employee in the U.S., which is $4,420. Executives are over $14,000. This is not the added cost of salary. This is just the cost to hire. We've spent, as an economy, about $40 billion more this year in hiring than we did in 2019. Is that mostly just straight-up salaries? Is it recruiting costs? Is it advertisements? Uh, just... It, it, yeah, sign on bonuses, time, uh, not bonuses, not, not nothing to do with salary. This is the actual cost to hire an employee. You know, keep in mind, there are lots of employees and we're seeing more and more hiring taking place than ever before. Uh, Four million, uh, six million people, slightly over six million people were hired last month, uh, according to the Jolts report, yeah. a little over four million people quit. Uh, this is more than what's happening in hiring than in 2019 because of job mobility, the uh, wage inflation. People are it's easier to leave a job. You know, our recruiter index showed that uh, 57 percent of the recruiters in the index saw that 30 percent of the employees uh, of the candidates that they were talking to had three jobs in the last year. Just amazing. And you're seeing on the slide now. Uh, focusing on employee uh, you know, salaries of eighty to one hundred thousand dollar range are also up yeah. uh, significantly over this past month. So we're really seeing this real movement of employees still moving around despite a looming recession. Do we know where they're going to, and more importantly, where they're going? I mean, going from and going to Evan? Because I talk to businesses on TV. I also just talk to businesses in my town. A tree guy, somebody up in Wisconsin, where I go all the time. None of them can find anyone. It's, so I, I don't know if people are right. going from one job to the other. It just feels like people have disappeared. 
So, the, you know, I, 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 this is like deja vu, Brian. We talked about this earlier in yeah. the year. Um, you know, you asked me, how are they making money? If you're not working, how are you making money? And you saw Uber's numbers uh, yesterday, and the average Uber driver is making $36 an hour. So our speculation, and anecdotally, in talking to recruiters and in our clients, that pre-pandemic, someone might have had two jobs working at a factory. One, one factory, they worked at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The other factory, they worked at Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Pandemic comes, they start driving for Uber. Pandemic's over. They go back to one factory and drive for Uber or DoorDash or some other gig uh, in that second job. Uh, the other thing is people are crossing the street. You know, we had this stigma of not leaving a job uh, early, right? Whether it's your parent that said yeah. you got to stay for four years, suck it up. That doesn't exist anymore or certainly doesn't exist at the same level. So if I could cross the street and work at another factory uh, for a, uh, an extra 25 cents an hour, or I'm going to go to another job because they're going to pay me more money. Yeah. I'm going to do that. What was holding me back was the stigma of being a job hopper. And now we call it job mobility. Now it's like a st- stigma of not being a job hopper because you're seen as foolish for not going to get more pay because somebody probably wants you. It's an unbelievable jobs market. We'll see how long it lasts. Evan Sohn recruited. we got to leave it there. Evan, we'll get you back on, though. We'll do like a monthly thing. Well, it's Kelly's show. I'm just filling in. We'll get you back on with her, and we'll talk more about it. Evan, thank you. Thanks so much, Brian. Have a great day. Very welcome. All right, we are just getting started here on The Exchange. On deck, the big money being made by helping feed the world. The CEO of fertilizer maker CF Industries is here. And then from fertilizer to fintech, earnings exchange featuring PayPal, Block, and Coinbase. Stick around. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. In September of 2021, I tweeted out that as natural gas costs surged in Europe, the spread in price between Europe and us with regard to natural gas would make it a lot more attractive for American fertilizer companies like CF Industries and Mosaic. I used to trade fertilizer in a previous job before TV, although some people say I still slaying fertilizer. Anyway, since that tweet, which was five months before Putin's invasion, shares of CF have doubled. American fertilizer is in more demand than ever, in part because of higher costs in Europe, but also Russian supplies being obviously cut off. Russia is the biggest maker of most chemical fertilizers. But that doesn't mean everything is perfect for companies like CF. Let's talk about it and dive in. Joining us now is Tony Will, CF Industries CEO. And in a previous life, long time ago, 
Uh, Tony, I used to trade with uh, your previous company and some others out there. So I, I know the business a little bit, and I know how much these energy input costs matter. How much have you been helped by, while natural gas costs have come down in Europe, they're still 5x what we're paying. Yeah, our business is really an energy spread differential. And so in the U.S., we're paying, call it $6 an MMBTU. In, uh, in Europe today, I think the spot price is about 20. The month ahead is closer to 35 or 40. And that differential times all of the MMBTUs that we use uh, is the, the profit opportunity that we have. So the fact that North America has got a huge supply and relatively accessible, cheap natural gas is a huge benefit to our business. And is that is that moderating at all? Is that changing at all? Because your stock has doubled in just yeah. over a year. Yeah, well, Brian, if you look at the forward gas curve for both NBP, which is uh, the national balancing point in the UK, and TTF, which is in the Netherlands, versus Henry Hub here in the United mm-hmm. States, um, that, that differential is expected to persist for the next couple of years, and then it'll compress a little bit, but remain persistently higher than it was in the past. And You know, I think that's just reflective of the fact that Europe is just chronically energy short right now, whereas the U.S. has a a very robust uh, basin. Yeah. uh, Energy costs have come down. Natural gas has come down in Europe, but they're still paying about 34 U.S. dollars equivalent. We're at six bucks. Let's all hope that at some point Putin goes away, whether that's naturally or unnaturally. If you see what I'm saying, the war ends. Uh, do you have any longer term projections about what what would happen if and when Russia is reopened to the world? Putin's long gone. Somebody comes in. What happens? Yeah, so um, I'm with you. We all hope that that happens and, and happens sooner rather than later. Most of the nitrogen production coming from uh, Russia is actually finding its way into the export market uh, along the lines of uh, historical rates. So that has not dramatically reduced Russian production. And in fact, it's not a sanctioned product in most of the world. So um, that doesn't really change the amount of production, but what should happen is flow of natural gas back to Europe increases, gas costs in Europe um, comes down as a result. And you see a lot of the plants that are curtailed in Europe starting back up again. And and the world needs that. We're on the, the verge of a a food availability crisis right now. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because we just don't have enough fertilizer available. And so the world really needs those European plants to operate again. And back to your uh, um, opening comment, let's hope that that happens as a result of the war going away and a change in regime in Russia. What is the movement in global fertilizer prices and this price generally in, in per metric ton, or at least it was back in the day when I was doing it, how does that impact food costs? Yeah, no, a lot of times it's the other way around. Um, so because we're at a historic low right now in terms of stocks to use for most of the uh, major grains, that means that uh, food pricing is very high. So corn is pushing $7 uh, a bushel, and that means that there is huge agricultural demand for nitrogen. And that's you know bidding up uh, the, the price of, of fertilizer, partly also because... Yeah there's a supply side contraction on nitrogen. So we've got this tightening on the supply demand with very high food pricing. And our hope was that throughout the balance of this year, we'd see some relief in terms of stocks yeah. going up. But in fact, 
um, stocks have not made any substantial improvement because problems with yield globally around weather conditions and other problems. You read my mind. Speaking of weather, very quickly, for people who don't know what your product is, and for lack of a better term, they, they think manure, it's chemical <laughs> stuff. It looks like kitty litter. It's sort of these small, almost ball-type things. And I loaded ships in Gonzales, Louisiana, Port Charlotte, no. Florida. <laughs> Gonzales, I'm thinking about the Mississippi River levels and these yeah. 36 barge trains filled with your stuff. How severe is the Mississippi River for you guys getting it up and down the river? Yeah, for, for us, it's different than for the industry writ large. Um, we have a number of manufacturing locations that are throughout the Midwest. And so that in-market production is already where it needs to be. We can truck it. We can rail short distances and get it directly into the farmer's hands. It is a problem for our Louisiana plant in Donaldsonville, and mm-hmm. that is making it much more difficult to get that product into the Midwest. But as you pointed out, Europe has been chronically short because of the gas situation. We've been exporting a lot of that product into Europe. But anyone who relies on imported product into the U.S. is facing significant problems logistically getting that product yeah. from the Gulf Coast up into the Midwest. And in fact, with the potential of a looming rail strike, that's only going to exacerbate an already difficult situation. We don't have time to get into that, and let's hope it doesn't happen. But I was thinking about that potential rail strike, and my gosh, that would just be unbelievable. But uh, great to have you on. Tony Will, thank you very much. Helping to feed the world. We appreciate you coming on. Be well. Brian, thanks very much. All right, take care. All right, coming up, another view from the C-suite. Very different business. This time with the CEO of EVGo on their path to profitability, the state of the energy transition. Oh, and by the way, the impact of the high cost of energy on them. Stick around. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Looks like the Hawks are winning out again after we rose 400 yesterday on the Fed announcement and then fell basically 800 points on the press conference. The Dow's come off. It's low. It's down 401 point. The Nasdaq is still down, though, about 1% as well. Speaking of technology, Qualcomm down. They gave weak guidance and revealed they started a hiring freeze this quarter. The stock hitting its lowest levels since July of 2020. Roku, it's down again. Company saying fourth quarter financials are going to come in below expectations. That's setting Roku down to their lowest levels since January 2019. I mean, basically, look at that. This was a pandemic favorite, a nearly $500 stock. It's now 52 bucks. It's not all bad, I guess. Robinhood is higher today. Results beat estimates, thanks in part to higher rates and lower expenses. That stock having its best day in two months. But Robinhood still down 85% from its all-time high of 85 bucks a share. Now, let's get a CBC News update with Frank Holland. Frank. Hey there, Brian. Here's what's happening at this hour. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid has conceded defeat to Benjamin Netanyahu in this week's election. Lapid also offered congratulations and instructed his office to prepare for an organized transition of power. In Pakistan, protests have sparked up in multiple cities after former Prime Minister Imran Khan was injured in a shooting attack. Khan had been leading a protest convoy across the country, saying he was the victim of a conspiracy by the current Prime Minister and the United States. And Pope Francis has started a four-day visit to Bahrain. It's only the second time the Pope has traveled to the Arabian Peninsula. 
While the trip is meant to improve ties with the Islamic world, the Pope did speak out against the death penalty and discrimination today in a country that executes some criminals and has been accused of numerous human rights abuses. That's the very latest. Brian, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you very much. Still ahead here on The Exchange, PayPal, Block, and Coinbase. It's all an earnings exchange with Kate Rooney. Next. All right, welcome back. As the snazzy graphic says, time for earnings exchange. And today we got a singular focus. That focus is fintech, a.k.a. financial technology. And today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on PayPal, Block, and Coinbase. All right, first up, PayPal. That stock is down, what, 58, 59% as consumer spending slows. CNBC's Kate Rooney is the story in all three stocks. Delano Sapporo joins us now with the trade. He is the CEO of New Street Advisors and, of course, a CNBC contributor. All right, Kate Rooney doing triple duty today. All, th- <laughs> all But I know, you're, I know you're ready. All right, PayPal, give us the setup. FinTech Super Bowl today. So, uh, you want to watch e-commerce strength for PayPal. So that could also give us a bit more of a glimpse into the health of the U.S. consumer. Also watch for updates on Venmo. They've got this new Amazon partnership. Any progress on checkout, which is a big part of that. And will it help Venmo reach profitability? That has been a sort of moving target for analysts uh, over the past couple of years. Payments volume, that's still really what drives the bulk of PayPal's revenue. And then there's really this focus on cost-cutting that has been driven by Elliott, which is a relatively new activist investor. But cost-cutting right now, the name of the game for fintech. Delano, I can't figure out PayPal. You, you buy anything online, there's a giant PayPal button on every web page. Everybody seems to now be wanting to be paid with Venmo, and yet mm-hmm. the stock can't get out of its own way. No, it can't get about stolen away. Some of it is structural in the business that that is having some headwinds right now. But the other part of it is obviously a high interest rate environment. It's tough for growth stocks right now. E-commerce slowdown, which was part of the, the winning strategy for them in 2021. So a, a lot going on. But I think, you know, for people, I wouldn't be ditching this stock. You know, we're still holding. I'm still holding. I think when you look at it now, some of the story is that it's now four, 18 times forward earnings. So it's much lower than around 30 times it was trading in December of 2019. So that's good news. I think Venmo uh, picks up traction. They have a strong brand in this fintech space. I think that bodes well for them down the line, even though they're slowing down. There's no way to deny that the growth is the growth rate slowing down. Yeah. That's something that investors has to be worried for, worry, worryful of uh, going forward. Yeah, Kate, what do people say about PayPal? Like, what's its biggest problem? So one of the themes has been sort of these unforced errors by PayPal. <laughs> they uh, have a great product. They've got some good brand loyalty. But they have historically, at least in the last couple of years, either set the targets too high, missed their own internal targets. And some of the things have been described as unforced errors. And it's been spending. They really, Wall Street right now wants to see more cost discipline out of names like PayPal. And you really have seen that. It's actually outperformed some of its uh, fintech peers and the other names reporting today, likely because of that Elliott involvement, the idea that there is now an activist investor that's going to hold this company accountable. But they've also had some big executive changes. CFO left for Walmart. So it's now a show-me story, as a lot of analysts are describing it. All right. Next up is Block, the company formerly known as Square, facing really kind of similar troubles. That stock down by 66%. I guess the singer Huey Lewis was wrong. Kate, it's not hip to be Square, and it's certainly not hip to be this stock either. Is this kind of a a show-me story, like a PayPal? It is an interesting, we were just talking about Venmo, so they've got this big Venmo competitor, the Cash App. It tends to uh, cater to a bit of a lower income consumer. 
that has been one of the worries around Square is that now, after stimulus checks have ended, they are now way more exposed than a PayPal, for example, to what's going on in the lower end consumers. That'll be a big line item to watch. They also do payday lending, which, again, talk about some of the riskier sides of lending. Got to keep an eye on that. The seller business is more of the payments hardware. You think of when you walk into a coffee shop and you're using Square, again, could give us a bit of a sense of what kind of what's going on in the macro environment and the broader economy. And then again, payments volume. Crypto used to be a big thing we talked about with Block. Not looking like a big revenue yeah. boost this quarter compared to at least last year. Yeah, non-profitable companies, Delano, have not done well as we know. I mean, is there any... Is there any reason to own this company, not on the business, but on the idea that at some point maybe they get cheap enough that they get bought? I mean, I wonder if there's that sort of that put, that Visa or MasterCard or PayPal put that should be on this name. I don't know. Yeah, certainly that's that's that could be an, an option. And I think uh, one of the main re- reasons why a larger company would want to purchase uh, Block would be the primary growth driver, cash app uh, that Kate was mentioning. And I think that's one area that they're looking to continue to grow. Obviously, the macro environment doesn't bode well for this stock. And it's something that we've been holding. And it's obviously trading down over 60 percent year to date and 60 percent on the year. And if you look at it, a lot, over 70 percent of their revenues was kind of that BTC transactional run in 2021. And with that gone and with them guiding towards a lower amount of retail trading and transaction on the cryptocurrency side that doesn't doesn't bode well but it doesn't make it it does possibly make it more attractive for a larger company um, and so those reasons why we're holding and we think structurally there could be more more growth in the future for this company i could see from my giant monitor that kate rooney you were itching to get in there what, what's a comment <laughs> give us another comment on on, on block slash square Well, it's interesting you mentioned that put. That has actually been what a lot of analysts describe as sort of a bottom for fintechs, especially Robinhood, where there's been a lot of M&A rumors there. Uh, But the idea that it's interesting, Square has all of these different sort of competing businesses, a block at this point, and that's sort of why they did the name change. They hopefully, I mean, you, you could see a world where they are diversified enough at this point where they're able to weather some things like a trading and crypto slowdown if they're able to grow deposits and focus on sort of the small business side. Yeah. So that's one of the questions going forward. Are they diversified enough to stand on their own? And then not to mention buy now, pay later. They're also really exposed to this lending space as yeah, well. But just kind of a, to me, it was an odd name change because now I always think about H&R Block, the tax filing <laughs> company. But I'm like 120 <laughs> years old, so that's what I do. Kate, talk to us about Coinbase. What's the setup there on Coinbase? Last but not least, Coinbase. Uh, so interesting coming. We talked about this around Robin a little bit and uh, rising rates helping to sort of offset some of the trading slowdown. We will likely see a similar dynamic with Coinbase. Um, interest income is going to become a lot more important. And uh, the question is, will that offset some of the slowdown we've seen in crypto? They're also trying to manage to this $500 million loss target. They've said that is the ceiling there is optimism that they could change that. That target could move and improve a little bit. So that would be one big yeah. thing to watch and what Wall Street's watching. And then revenue diversification, anything away from just that core trading fee business, subscriptions and services would be the line item to watch there. I just wonder, Delano, if, if Coinbase or anybody else in that space can do anything until crypto takes off again. I mean, assuming it does, it may not. But if it does... Right. Unless Bitcoin or Ether, you know, Ripple, they start surging again. It seems to be tied to that. The stock is tied to the coins. 
Yes, it, it is tied to trading activity. It's tied to, you know, massive market, whether it's bull or bear markets and that, getting that trading activity. And so, as Kate was mentioning, the different diversification in the business is going to be important. Um, having, you know, transactions where, you know, customers can use wallets and different services they can provide will be important for them. Um, I think it's very, very, you know, dire times right now as far as you look at the retail trade in the market and their declining growth. But I think, you know, I'm still bullish long term on the ecosystem and on cryptocurrency long term. I think this yeah. Coinbase is going to have a little bit of struggle when it comes to, you know, finding those different services that will work and be a tailwind for the business going forward. So that's kind of why you have to be cautious um, in this certain time for a company yeah. like Coin. Yeah, one might actually say, Kate, that it's got a base of coins. Exactly. They might do a name change. You never know. But the the trading volume is all out there publicly. So I think the expectation based on what you can see is extremely low. The bar is really low for trading volume. As one analyst put it to me, it's sort of, you know what's going on in the macro environment. We all know what's going on in the markets. If you've been watching CNBC, the focus is now on the levers and what these companies can control. That really tends to be about operating expenses and cost cutting. So that's really the focus Well, for most of these fintechs that we're talking about. All right. Kate Fintech Rooney, thank you. Delano, (laughs) thank you very much. Appreciate that. Another earnings exchange in the hopper. All right. Still ahead. It is mystery chart time. If you're on the radio, you're out of luck. If you're watching on TV, can you name that stock? It is a logistics company. Shares obviously have been hit like Muscle Market. But they're making a big, bold bet on EV charging. Think you know? Hit me up at Sully CNBC. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. As states like California enact EV requirements for commercial buildings, building out charging infrastructure is key. And the nation's largest warehouse company is getting in on the action. Diana Olick is here to explain and to reveal today's mystery chart. (laughs) Yes, I will, Brian. Charging electric vehicles at a warehouse where those vehicles have to sit for hours anyway to be loaded and unloaded makes for a lucrative opportunity. So, Prologis is now starting to install EV charging stations in its warehouses, first with two projects in California, but 50 more are in the works. It's a multi-billion dollar investment, but the company's CEO says the returns could be even bigger than the warehouse rental business itself. I think that those economics are only going to get better over time as uh, power demands go up and electricity becomes more and more expensive. Uh, so uh, so we think it's a pretty attractive opportunity. And uh, we're doing it primarily because it's a good economic opportunity for our shareholders. I also asked Mogadam about the health of the warehouse market in the current economy. Our earnings have been growing at double digits for a long time and they'll continue to grow. And our dividends have been also growing at uh, low double digits. Uh, the, the business uh, can't be any better. I really can't complain. And he added that warnings from Amazon and FedEx are overblown, he said, because they really expanded their footprint significantly in 2020 and 21. And it was impossible for them to keep pace with that level of expansions. Things now are just normalized, he said, Brian. Yeah, amazing business, obviously, supply chain issues, logistics, all this other stuff. I I guess I'm a little confused on the EV side. Are these going to store them? Like what's the the, the chargers and the EV connection between Prologis? 
Well, what Prologis is doing is putting EV charging stations into its warehouses so that the vehicles that are coming in, the delivery trucks, can then charge while they're loading and unloading. Oh, so and what that used. means, it's a revenue stream. Got so it. They they're going to be pay. used in the, the – I, I thought they were exactly. literally just storing them, like, in a warehouse. That's why it was – but I'm not very bright. No, it's so no? they can charge. And then, of course, Prologis can charge those companies for that electricity, which will become, as he said, a billion-dollar revenue stream. Yeah, that's where I, I, he was talking about it. I was thinking, how are they going to make a billion bucks just like boxing up a bunch of EV chargers from EVgo or others in those warehouses? I got it. Diana Olick, I'm a little, little foggy. Not that charged. Thank you for clarifying it. And tell Eamon Javers, hi, we just saw him walking around behind you. <laughs> Diana, thank you. All right. So speaking of what Diana just spoke of, charging your car, we're chatting with the CEO of EVgo and how the big charger rollout is going to go around America. Stick around. Welcome back. Shares of EVgo higher today, despite reporting a wider than expected loss for the third quarter, company blaming labor shortages and supply chains, saying a lack of available transformers is preventing the installment of more charging stations at the pace they would like. All this coming at a critical time for America's EV infrastructure, with states, again, like California and New York, aiming to stop the sale of gas-powered cars in just over the next decade. For more, let's welcome in Kathy Zoy. She is the EVgo CEO. Also spent time with the U.S. Energy Department. Kathy, good to have you on. It's obviously, I mean, it's a booming industry, and there's been a lot of money in the Inflation Reduction Act that was put directly to you and others in your space. We're looking at your chargers behind you. What's the supply chain issue that you're dealing with? Copper, metals, labor, what? For us, it's mostly, it's not a direct, we can get our chargers and we've got a like great line of sight into and to what's coming in our demand. It's really actually the, uh, the, the utilities that need to put in new transformers as we add large stations that are capable of charging all these EVs that are coming to market. So that's, that's the biggest issue. That's the long pole in the tent right now um, that affects the pace with which we actually deploy our new chargers. Yeah, and the, and the labor side, I know, is also a part of this. You need people to go out and put them in, and, you know, industrial bases, commercial bases, wherever they, wherever they may be. How challenging is that right now? Uh, that actually, we're actually coming around, we're, we're, we're past the hardest part of that, I think. I think the industry, the construction industry is well and truly training new teams, and we've got lots and lots of contractors lined up to install our charters wherever we want to build them. Um, so for us, you know, we're leveraged to EVs that hit the market. And Bloomberg is forecasting that like between now and 2027, that's going to grow 90 over 90 percent. Um, and you compare that to what's going to happen on internal combustion engines, the old style of cars, which are going to go down in that same period. So we are really, really excited about the growth trajectory. And we've got uh, we have no doubt that that the skills are out there. The hardware is going to be out there for us to be able to meet that demand. What about the utilities side of it, uh, the speed of the utilities being able, I mean, you, you take a lot of wattage, you know, you need the utilities to, to, to plug in to your plug-ins. That's right. I mean, the utilities are, are really excited about the electrification and transportation. Of course, they would be. It's actually, there's more demand for their product. It does require some planning, though. So we work hand in hand with the utilities. We provide them with our forward plans on where do we want to build, what parts of their service territory, so that we can give them a heads up so that they can order the transformers that are needed, that they can, say, sign off on. We have to get their approval on the engineering design, and we, we want, you know, we, we're very excited about that, but that does take some forward planning. 
Um, each of our stations is, is, is a sort of 350 kilowatt station, the chargers behind me times six stalls. So that needs to have a transformer upgrade in most local areas. But again, all handleable. It's just taking a little planning time. Well, and, and talk to us about electricity costs. I drove, a, I drove an EV from Vegas to San Francisco last year when prices were cheaper. I was actually shocked at how expensive it was to plug in. I, I thought it was going to be free or like $4. I paid 30 bucks in some cases on a small EV. How does that impact your business? How are you related to electricity costs, if at all? Oh, we are. We are. We don't. We actually purchase electricity from the local utilities. And so the, the what you pay for a fast charge, the cost of that electricity is, is included in what you pay for a fast charge. Also, the cost of the equipment, the maintenance, providing that convenient, reliable service to get that fast charge. Now, the, the good news is that many electricity companies are actually having special EV rates. So in like in all the California utilities and many other places in America, EVGo is paying special EV rates and we are able to charge at certain times of day. We are offered to offer cheaper rates where, where the utilities want us to do that as well. So I will tell you that the average amount of money out of pocket for a charging session on EVGo um, stations today is about $10. So it's pretty good. That's pretty, I, I didn't, you know, we used a variety. It wasn't just EVGo, it was ChargePoint. We sort of, and we filmed it all just so everybody knows what it was. Um, what's your relationship with GM? Can you describe pilot company GM for our viewers, your investors? What exactly is that relationship and what do you hope to get out of it? Yeah, so we have a really lovely set of partnerships with General Motors. General Motors is obviously going all electric over time. They want to make sure that potential EV buyers are excited about and not excited about the ability to charge. So they're coming to the party. We have a $90 million partnership with, with GM right now where they help pay for some of the charging infrastructure that we put out there so that we build ahead of when those cars hit the market. So that's kind of partnership number one on our public network. There's another partnership that we announced last summer where EVGo and Pilot Flying J, one of the largest sort of truck stop operators on corridors in America, um, is, has, is, building, is putting in charging stations. And EVGo, in that, in that particular relationship, we offer our EVGo Extend product where we build those chargers and then operate those chargers on our network. Yeah. The ownership of those chargers is actually on Pilot's books. Again, that, that project is just getting kicked off now. 2,000 charging stalls on highway corridors across America. And I, and I think, you know, the truck stops, honestly, Kathy, Bucky's, if you know what that is, sheets. Yeah, I do. I mean, that's the future of charging because you need space and, and people want to have something to do, right? I'm going to get some, you know, Bucky's nuggets or whatever they may be. Kathy Zoy of EVGo, interesting stuff there in a booming market. Kathy, appreciate you coming on. Be well. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, All Brian. right, absolutely. All right, still ahead. What's spending slowdown? Travel and hospitality CEOs striking optimistic tones this earnings season. What's got them so positive? And before we go to break, take a look at some of the declines in big tech right now. I mean, Facebook slash Meta, unbelievable. Lowest level since October of 2015. You just hope a lot of those employees have not tied their mortgages to borrowing against their stock. That may be another big story. We're back right after this. Want to get one more thing before we go here on this hour, the travel stocks. Marriott and Royal Caribbean had results out this morning. Expedia results out after the bell. Industry execs striking an upbeat tone this earnings season. Seema Modi joins us now with what they are saying about the ongoing recovery. All as today, Seema, yeah. my beloved parents boarded a cruise ship for a week-long cruise. 
Well, there you go. Uh, people are getting back out there. And, and that was what we heard from travel CEOs today, Brian, recognizing that, yes, the macroeconomic environment may be getting worse, but consumers are still spending more on travel. Booking Holdings saying it's not even seeing travelers shorten their trips. That would be a sign that consumers are trading down. It's also being helped by an increase in cross-border travel, with over 50 percent of its sales outside the U.S. And Marriott said the stronger dollar helped its numbers in Europe. Cross-border guests accounting for 15% of global room nights versus the 12% in the first quarter. However, foreign travel, foreign arrivals to the United States is still down, led by Asia, specifically China. It's the zero-COVID policy there and quarantine measures, plus uh, the unfavorable exchange rate, certainly not incentivizing not only Asians but folks from Europe to come to the United States. The companies, though, that are best positioned to capitalize on this growing cross-border travel trend would be Marriott. It's been aggressively expanding its footprint outside the U.S. Analysts also point to Booking Holdings and Hilton. Uh, meantime, Royal Caribbean receiving twice as many bookings for 2023 sailings in the third quarter as it did in the second, uh, an averaging occupancy of 96% across all of its ships. That is faring better than its competitors, Carnival and Norwegian Cruise Line. Shares are up today and up about 40% in the past month. Royal Caribbean CEO Jason Liberty will join us tomorrow exclusively right here th on the exchange. Uh, you know, I was Brian? talking to my folks about their trip. It's like their third cruise in the last year and a half. And, you know, I was asking him, is the ship full? And my dad thought that the ship was not fully booked, like they were only booking half the rooms or something or cabins on the boat. He wasn't sure about that. Are they? When you say 94% full, are they 94% full or 94% on like half the rooms? So it really depends on the cruise line and on the specific ship. Some ships are allowing everyone back on board. They're saying, you know what? COVID restrictions are out. The CDC is giving us the all clear. Let's bring everyone back up, bring everyone back on board. Some of the luxury cruise lines are saying, you know what? Let's still delay or slow down the number of people that we allow back on the ship because we know a lot of our customers, specifically 65 and older, want a bit more room, right? And a little bit more space. So it really depends on, on the cruise line, Brian. Quickly, Expedia. What are we expecting? Expedia, will they strike a similar optimistic tone that Booking Holdings did? And on pricing, Airbnb said Q4 numbers will soften on ADRs, average daily yep. rates. Expedia, we'll have to see what they say. Seema, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.